Welcome to Confronting Christian Culture, a podcast where we address the issues found in old lessons and expectations. Welcome, everyone, to a special episode of Confronting Christian Culture. I'm your host, Jory, and today I'm gathering with two uh, guests, uh, which is special because this has only happened one other time. Uh, but these are returning guests. This I have uh, Nick and Ethan. Hey, guys. So, uh, <laughs> All right. Hello. Yeah. So, Ethan, we you you said you heard listened to Nick and I's episode, and <laughs> we started talking about the problems of evil and suffering. And you want to kind of we want to dig back into that today. Yeah, if that if that's cool with you, I yeah. I thought I thought that you guys' conversation was really great all the way around, and and um, I thought that that was a topic that is worth kind of exploring, because I think it's I think that bad or or misguided ways of trying to answer the question of evil and suffering are are some of the most powerful reasons to not be a Christian. Hmm. That if if you you know, if some of these bad ways of talking about it are true, then gosh, why even bother? You know, why even bother living in that world? Yeah. And so, but yeah, I think it's really cool conversation. I think it's good stuff to talk about. All right. So what, I, I guess the first question for anybody who's listening, uh, that's not like, that hasn't taken courses in theology or getting their PhD in it, like Ethan is, um, what is, the first question has to be, what the heck are you talking about what is the problem of evil um so the problem of evil is usually put uh fair pretty much like this how is it possible that god can be all good and all powerful and know all things and yet there is still suffering and evil in the world and that's that's kind of the the pervading question. And so what theologians have, have done or tried to do for 2000 years is at least certainly before that 2000 years in our tradition is try to make sense of that is to try to reason our way or think about how that might be possible. Yeah. I can see how you got that, how, how our conversation uh, on prayer and discussing that kind of stuff got mm -hmm. you to this I remember being told all the time that, you know, there's a reason for everything. God has a plan. Every, you know, we might not understand it now, but that's, you know, God knows why this happened. Yeah, that's, that's my childhood exposure to this, to the answer to the, this question, um, which, in my opinion, makes the God that you serve evil. Um, Sure. So the, the common thing that I've bumped up against with kind of your general lay person in American Christianity is basically what you said, Jory, but it kind of bumps down to, um, well, we don't know. We can't know. We trust God is good because God says God is good. And we need to move forward living in this sort of liminal space of not actually understanding the problem if we're being really theologically minded about it or people have the vocabulary for it they might call it the mystery 
mm-hmm. right? It's something of the mystery of God, which is hard for me to uh, kind of just resign to, um, one, from coming from a background of not believing in God for a very long time, but now in my current context of being a person of faith, specifically in the Methodist tradition, in the Methodist tradition, we believe um, in reason and that we have the ability to reason mm-hmm. given to us by God and uh, that it is one of the four pillars we really lean on to understand God and the reality around us. And so that answer that we just can't know essentially says uh, that our ability to reason just simply isn't adequate, that God did not actually gift us with the ability to reason in a way which would lead us to any kind of revelation about the nature of reality, about the nature of God and ourselves. Um, and so I just, I just can't accept it because I agree with the Methodist premise, at least, and, and you can find it in other traditions as well. Um, but I agree with the premise that God gave us the ability to reason uh, and that we are supposed to use it to understand these things. So that's why I just sort of naturally reject that particular argument and find it problematic. And from just a purely logical standpoint in that regard, but, but your point about that God being evil is fascinating. And I wonder if you could explain more about why it is that if that was the way God was, that it was just this mystery of how God interacts with suffering in the world. Uh, why, why does that make God evil? I would say we just need to look at history. Um, that means that if, because with the problem of evil, the concept is, you know, everything's been planned, everything that God is all knowing, all powerful can stop evil, but he hasn't. So let's look at the Holocaust. Let's look at any of the genocides in the world. God knew that was going to happen, but apparently the suffering of millions of people children uh jews christians uh homosexuals people minority groups oppressed groups like that is all fine apparently that's all part of the plan and if if my plan to build a house involves murdering or letting a thousand people die in the process i don't think it's a house worth building sure absolutely Absolutely. So you've touched, I agree with you completely, but and Jory, you've touched on a move in, in an, well, an event, a historical event that has prompted a lot of Western theology to rethink a lot of its categories, um, the Holocaust. And so for obvious reasons, like you just said, like the, that event, um, one of the things that makes that event uh, a, a site of such disruption for like theologians who are thinking this way is that it's, it's just simply impossible to explain in, in, um, in, in the most sort of cold kind of capitalistic ways. Like slavery is, is arguably like, like American slavery is arguably the same sort of genocidal event. Right. Um, uh, the Trail of Tears is sort of the same kind of genocidal event. 
But the reason why that, uh, those events weren't, weren't viewed in the same way by Western theologians as being these disruptive events, at least up until the 70s with, with some Native American and black theology, um, is because they're explainable. Hey, money. You know, the, the uh, uh, establishment of, of God's new perfect kingdom, the city on the hill, the United, the United States. Um, these black and, and native folks were heathens anyway. You know, like, like all of that is, of course, bullshit. But, but those are the explanations. But we're talking about six million Jews. Like we're talking about people whom, uh, despite all of Christianity's rampant anti-Semitism that's kind of throughout our history, these are people that God has supposedly chosen. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, the, the way we kind of think about this stuff is always sort of predicated on, on Hitler and, and, and the Holocaust. There's a Latin phrase for it that I, I can never remember, but it's like reducio ad Hitlerium all things come back to Hitler. <laughs> um, you know, we laugh at it, but like, but like we can reduce all theological questions back to Hitler. Like, like, Oh gosh, like, what does that mean? There, there's a Jewish rabbi named Irving Greenberg who has a rule, a theological rule that he establishes after the Holocaust. And I'm just going to read it. It's short. I'm just, but I, but I want to get it. I want to get it right. The rule is no statement, theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be credible in the presence of burning children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so obviously that's a reference to you know, events at Auschwitz and, and stuff like that. Like, and, and I think that the, that the kind of moral weight of that, I think is, is quite true. Like, yeah, I mean, if we keep the suffering of people in mind um, and very, and not, not a lot of Christian theologians do that well, but, but if we keep the kind of suffering of people or just Christian people, if we keep the suffering of, of people in mind, um, a lot of what we say about God and our faith is pretty, is pretty dumb. It's pretty horrific. You know, prosperity, the prosperity gospel is, it comes to mind immediately. What's good for me is good. Well, I mean, Hey, if, if, if God has to get if the way God gives you wealth is by exploiting tens of millions of people, it's still bad. Like it doesn't matter if, you know, it, the only way we can come to the conclusion that it's good is if we decenter the suffering of people, and and center our own, whatever. So no good. It really highlights the place of privilege that the three of us are coming from when we talk about this, right? Because, well, not that we don't suffer, but we're not suffering in such grand scale ways. Um, we're three straight white married dudes in America, like uh, in the 21st century, there's a lot less suffering on us, even in the midst of a global pandemic, like we are right now, but like there's a lot less suffering on us than other people. And I, it always makes me think about um, 
Doors of the Sea by David Bentley Hart, which mm-hmm. is a, a book I think all three of us have been affected by when we're talking about this issue of suffering, because that's what that book's all about. And one of the things about that book that's so striking beyond all the theological arguments, uh, beyond all the history lessons that he gives us on um, where all these arguments come from, the thing that stands out is his position um, that it's stupid for us to be talking about it right now. Uh, So like, just to give context to the listener, like David Bentley Hart wrote that book uh, because a lot of people were bugging him to write a book about suffering because there had just been uh, large scale death at the hand of tsunamis that uh, wiped out parts of Asia, uh, East Asia. And they wanted him to reflect on it (laughs) Um, from his place of Western privilege, uh, not being personally necessarily affected by it. And he wrote the piece and he did the theological work, but he reflected and he said, you know, it's fine that we have these conversations really like the, the theological discussion around suffering isn't like a bad discussion, but, but to sit and reflect on where God is in the midst of this death while we're legitimately in the midst of the death to the people suffering and struggling with the loss just comes across as so callous and uncaring and unkind. Like Mm. at that moment, your deep theological musings about suffering and how God relates to it are meaningless compared to the need for food and water and shelter and um, just dealing with your grief in the, in the midst of massive loss. Uh, so I think it's worth pointing out our place of privilege in this conversation oh, yeah. um, and how people have wrestled with this conversation from much greater suffering that they were personally encountering than we do. I mean, we're yeah. ultimately just reflecting upon the work and the musings of giants far bigger than any of us. Uh, when we have this conversation. Mm. So when we throw around fancy words like theodicy, which we're going to come up because that's what this conversation is. It's it's about theodicy. Like we're going to sound pretentious and weird, but like just a moment of acknowledgement. We know that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, right. We, we know it. Uh, But, but you're right, Ethan, you said early on, like so many people lose their faith as we sit here in the Western world in our place of privilege, where we're allowed to sit around and just sort of think about suffering in a more abstract way, it's easy for us to lose faith over the concept of suffering when we're not Mm. super encountering it, Mm. where we find that faith thrives and flourishes in moments where suffering is truly being encountered. Um, And so there's a dissonance there between our culture, which seems to lose faith when we think about suffering versus those who are encountering suffering and what the numbers seem to suggest there. Um, so it's, it's just something to, I mean, I'm literally just rambling at this point, but it's just something to reconcile, something to really wrestle with that dissonance between us and the Western world um, who may be not encountering suffering to the same extent that's that also it sounds like an arrogant statement of course like we don't you know oh us in the west we're so immune to suffering 
uh, and everybody else us? is just so us, worse yeah. off compared to us, right? That's not that's not true, and that's not what I mean. Uh, just to say that we are absolutely coming from a place of privilege, and when we do so, it's funny that we tend to lose our faith over this mm. rather than strengthen it. I'll stop mm. talking now. <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. Now I now I do want to clarify when I talk about this con like. Nick, I feel like whenever I said the this God, other people would be saying that is all things are happening because of his will. Um, I would say, but that's an evil God because I also feel like they're also limiting and really restraining God because God's given us the ability to have agency and to have an effect on our world. And I feel like the God that they're talking about is a puppet master of just millions of billions of puppets at this point then like because sure. there's no then there's no reason why somebody got into an accident that was just part part of god's plan you can just you can use that as an excuse is it even an accident then you know that's like, true like we that, call that, it an accident but that, that's when that's when that gets kind of funny right like um for folks who who really take a high a high view i i don't even want to put it that way for folks who take a a, a really kind of kind of uh linear view of of how age of how god's agency works where um uh some theologians will call this a competitive view a competitive view of how god's agency works is really easy it's it's god is one agent among all other agents and god's agency is just stronger and so um we are uh we might have agency but ultimately our agency is over is overridden you know by god's kind of agency there are lots of ways that theologians talk about agency but that's that's i think a really common way that like what you're talking about drew is how it's talked about and in those and in things like that some of the i think i think if we kind of view that i, I really don't see how we can even talk about evil evil doesn't really exist then you know there's no there's really no such thing evil evil is an illusion that we've invented you know because all what it is is just the outworking of god's sovereign will you know where where that person dies because that person dies today that's just how it is you know some might say well god works all things for good and so there's a good reason for that person's death but um but but that good reason needs to be sort of suspended you know, there's a sense in which that is, um, it, it doesn't have to be obvious to us this side of, of the world. You know, it, it, that can be figured out later. Uh, not to get super nerdy, another word for this is called theopanism. <laughs> so there's pantheism. Pantheism is, is the way, is a word for, you know, all things are God. Creation is God. It, it's the nature and God are the same thing, but, but there's, uh, 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 theopanism, um, is sort of the other way of saying that perhaps, uh, it, it might be the same thing. Like it's sort of like pantheism, only the agency is sort of put on the other side. And so there's a sense in which you and you, the three of us in theopanism aren't really creatures, you know, we're, 
not not in like an autonomous sense like we are we are not even puppets really we're, we're just sort of the stuff that god uses to do what god wants in that exact moment um and so it's almost like you know we can't even say that we're people um outside of an illusion outside of like a theater right that's kind of nerdy um i have a question to you guys so like have you heard uh or of of or read or kind of talked through some of the different ways people have tried to reconcile this stuff and if so how what have you uh what have you thought of some of them Well, we used to talk about this a lot in seminary, obviously, which makes sense. You would expect this to be talked about in seminary. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember the name of this, but one that strikes me that I still wrestle with and struggle with in good ways and bad ways, uh, dealing with the paradoxes of God being all powerful, all knowing and all good, um, the notion that God intentionally limits God's mm. all powerfulness, uh, that in creating humanity, God is making a choice in God's own self to say, and I will pull back on my all powerfulness to give them free will. Uh, and not just, I mean, we tend to talk about it in terms of humanity specifically, but in terms of all of creation, um, having a sort of agency to it, to, to work itself out. Uh, and therefore, all the things that are bad are a result of God's intentional limiting of God's self. Mm. Um, because, arguably, uh, creating us as those puppets you were talking about would, um, in some sense, and to some people, uh, be God not actually being all loving, that God creating just these puppets that God makes dance around would not be a God which loves God's own creation, mm -hmm. uh, but just seeks to control it completely instead. Um, and so that struggles within the paradox. So the, this way's, the way this one gets around it is by saying God is is and isn't all-powerful. God is all-powerful in God's essence, but God, in God's own agency, chooses to limit God's all-powerfulness, which I'm saying a lot of words a lot, but I hope you're following. You, you, just, you just sound like a theologian, that's all. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> but basically, uh, and uh, Ethan, you might be able to help me with a name for that theology. Uh, I can't think of it, but... Uh, that's the one I tend to lean on the most for myself. Mm. Um, and I, like any theology, you're going to be able to find holes in things. Um, sure. Is it really loving to let humanity and creation, to create it into existence, just to let it destroy itself and suffer, right? And again, we're back to a, a debate ultimately over what the word loving means, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is, is a part of this um and and that's hard because that can be very subjective you know people have very different experiences with love um that create different biases on 
how we define it. And that makes it difficult when we all come together from our different perspectives to try to say, what is all loving? I mean, I think we can all pretty much agree on what all powerful means and what all knowing means in a more objective sense, but all loving becomes the most subjective of the three. Mm. And I think we can run into a lot of trouble with this conversation because we don't all mean the same thing when we say that God is all loving. Does that make Mm. sense? It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to figure out where I am now. Like I, I feel like I switch day to day sometimes on where my understanding of this is um i often i don't i'm sure that when i was in seminary we talked about this and we read on it but i don't so i don't know if it's just time or i wasn't paying attention or just the fact that i have one of the worst memories i know of but I don't remember talking about it much. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I, but I remember wrestling with this, especially, you know, when cash passed. Yeah. I remember, and I remember people telling me like, God did it for a reason. He let it happen for a reason, which again, people, if you're listening, like if you know somebody who's lost somebody, that is not the thing to say to them. <laughs> And just to be clear, Cash is your nephew who passed yes. away, who we talked about in the other episode, but we never actually named. Oh, we never named him. Okay. I don't I, Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify for the listener. Makes sense. But yeah, like, and I remember reading the DBH book and, and really, really struggling with that as well, but ultimately like loving his, his ending point. And like you talked about Nick about being like, we why like we're talking about this and it seems almost like why are we talking about this we're one we're in such a privileged state um and i feel like honestly for for like i feel like in the west in america especially we are always told and we are raised up to believe that you know the world is good. We're taught to think the the world is, you know, it's not just trial and suffering, but if we look through history and if we look through many struggling areas of the world now, like I feel like a lot of people grasp around a faith and their faith strengthens when they're in around suffering, because that's where God is. That's where God is focusing, I would say, focusing attention. But like that is where people are are searching one for his presence a lot harder and people are finding his presence. I feel like when we find suffering here, it's so, it's so, it's something we don't want the world to be. And so we have to say, this is horrible. How could God do this? Obviously, there's no God. We don't want to search. We don't want to do this trial and struggle of working for searching for god in the in the times of suffering in the times of trial so we just let go and that's that i know is a privileged view and i know it but it's yeah that's unfortunately like that's where my view is i can i can't i haven't had another experience i i would like and this goes with because if i had this conversation around global warming 
and climate change. Um, somebody told me, God, we can't destroy God's creation. Like that's, that's why climate change can't be real. Cause we can't destroy God's creation. My, I think what I told them was then what happened at the garden? Like, well then what, what was the point? Like if we, if we're going to follow that line of thought, whenever, whenever we ate from the forbidden fruit, we screwed up creation, right? It was our sin. And like, that's what we've been taught. So then either the fall of humanity was God's plan all along, or God has given us act, given us the ability to act and to take care of or not take care of this creation. I see a lot of suffering as the consequence of either our individual actions, collective actions, the greed of the of of people in in general and just the chaos that, you know, we've caused in the world. That's that's how I like the problem of evil is well it's our fault. God want like God wanted it to be perfect for us. He he wanted all these good things for us, but we wanted to make ourselves God. And he said, "Well, I mean, I wanted you to have choices, so that's your choice. And this is, you're not going to do well because you're not God. That's that's mm. often where I fall in. I'm like the evil of the world now. Like that doesn't mean because I stubbed my toe it was somebody's reason thousands of years ago but like you know it shit happens <laughs> I'll, I'll pontificate on this and right. take it further um because i love the stuff about the garden and all of that because i i find that particular myth incredibly fascinating i always have um but not to over and before I go on, I just want to say, like, yes, I know I brought up the privilege thing, but we absolutely do need to talk about this uh, because we do have people in our, especially with the three of us having pastoral roles at different times in our lives and different relationships, even if we're not officially in a pastoral role right now, you have pastoral relationships with people. And so, like, yeah, we have a responsibility to treat this seriously because people think about it and it can yeah. Mm-hmm. affect their lives so like yes we need to talk about this um the garden is fascinating uh the concept of because back, we're back to the idea of human freedom right and we're back to the idea of free will the choices concept uh and we're americans so we we think of freedom as a do whatever the hell you want for some reason, even though nothing about our constitution suggests that that is true, that has become the narrative of American freedom. Uh, and so we tend to think in those terms. And so I think it's, it becomes strange to, I think I noticed theologians find that way of thinking strange, or at least they hadn't considered using the term freedom in the way we tend to talk about freedom. And what tends to be assumed, and I can't remember which theologian I read that first articulated this for me. Um, but what is assumed when we talk about human freedom and free will is, uh, the assumption that God gives us freedom not to do whatever we want, but the freedom to choose the good, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that 
us being good in God's goodness couldn't be good if we did not go into it willingly and choose it. And so we are free so that we might choose what is good. The problem is we've often chosen what is not good. And thus, the story of the garden shows us that when we choose not the good, we can call it evil if we want to, um, that it is actually not a freedom, but an enslavement, too. Uh, which, is, which is why we have a lot of the liberation narratives that we do in Christian thinking, because it is our enslavement to the not good or to sin or to evil or whatever you want to call it, to sin and death. It's our enslavement to those things that we've bound ourselves into, and we use the story of the garden to create a myth from where that comes from, but it's our enslavement to that that we need broken out of, that we're, we're trapped in it. Yeah. Um, and the way I think about us being trapped in it is just how generational things work, right? When we were in pastoral care and counseling classes in seminary, we had to learn family systems, and how um, I, there's a lot of generational trauma in my family. So I know I work from that perspective a lot. Um, some very bad things happened to my family years before I was born. I wasn't born yet, neither were my cousins. And yet the trauma of that situation has radically affected our lives long after it has occurred. Uh, and how I am now as a result of that will affect if, I ever had any children would affect my children because that's, it would affect how I parented them. And then that would affect their children when they have children. Um, and, and it would be forgotten that that's where it came from. Yet the patterns of behavior would still be passed down. And so when we talk about sin kind of spreading forth from our original ancestors of, we like to say Adam and Eve, Take it as a literal or not, I really don't care. Um, but something occurs in humanity from the get-go mm -hmm. that is impossible to separate as it is handed down generation to generation to generation. Um, and the question, of course, is, well, should I be responsible for the sins of my fathers? Uh, and we can debate that. That's a salvation topic, which is... I guess the natural next conversation after suffering. Um, but the reality is we are affected by it. Whether we think that's fair or good or not is irrelevant. We are trapped as a human, mm. as a humanity. Couldn't think of yeah. the right way to articulate what I was trying to say. Um, we are trapped as humanity, not just as individuals, but as humanity in this enslavement to sin, to suffering, uh, that was, yes, perhaps a choice, and we still choose it. And the idea is we could still theoretically choose the good in the world. But even when we choose the good in the world, there's so many layers compounded on top of themselves that make it impossible for it to be totally purely good, right? Um, so... Uh, this is systems problems, right? Ultimately, the evil is systemic at this point. It's all these systems at play. So even if I, Pastor Nick, choose to do something good, uh, let's say I 
see a homeless person on the street and I know that they're hungry and there's a McDonald's there and I buy them some McDonald's food. You could argue I had chosen to do some good by feeding the hungry, right? Small thing though it is. Yet by buying the food from McDonald's, there is a larger system at play uh, which perpetuates things that lead to homelessness in the first place, that perpetuate uh, racism, violence in different uh, ways, economic disparity. Uh, there's, uh, you could list a, a bunch of things that come out of McDonald's that are bad, obesity, uh, continuing the system of consumerism for fatty foods that harm our health, Mm -hmm. um, pollute the earth and how they're created with the demand on beef being what it is. And that's contribution to global warming. And so even though I've chosen to do the good in feeding the hungry, it is impossible for me in that moment to actually avoid the systems of sin that cause suffering in the world. And so we're trapped. Uh, we're, we're totally trapped in it, whether we like it or not, whether we choose the good on an individual level or not, we're trapped in the suffering and death mm -hmm. cycles of this world. That's why the biblical authors talk about the, the, the ruler of this world being suffering and death, right? And that our Lord, our Savior, is not of this world. That's why, that's why we talk about it that way. Um, because God in pure goodness must be somehow separated from these inevitable systems of sin and suffering. Uh, and the garden story is just meant to illustrate that to us, that this moment sets off this chain reaction that's impossible for us to pull out of, which feels hopeless, really. I mean, you can get caught in that and believe that and just become totally nihilistic and think there's no point to anything in the world and why bother and why try. And Christianity has never actually shied away from that acknowledged reality, but has looked at that inevitable suffering, that inevitable sin and said, and yet in Christ, we can find hope. How we find hope in Christ, we might argue about, right? Sure. But we know and can agree the world is shit. And Christ somehow keeps us from killing ourselves uh, out of total despair <laughs> when we look at the shit of the world, um, which is a crass breakdown of what I ultimately just said. Uh, but yeah, I think that, that what you're picking up on, Jory, is that deeper layer of that there's these systems of suffering at play. And what we're asking ultimately is, what people are always asking is, why would God let it fucking get like this in the first place, right? Why let that first sin even happen? The question I used to ask all the time at Bible study when I was an angry teenager, uh, why, did, why did God put the tree in the garden? If God knew that it was possible for all the evil to happen, why put it there? And my answer that I pull from the theologians ultimately is because we had to choose the good for it to be good. Something mm. about the nature of good requires a consent to its goodness. And our mm. problem is just that we so often don't. True.
Let me let me ground what both of you said briefly in in theologians for the help nerdier us, help us for for the nerdier uh, listeners. Uh, Jory, there is a theologian by the name of Douglas John Hall, uh, who I would actually quite recommend to anybody, and I'd recommend to you. He wrote a book called. Um, it's actually really it's like God and Human Suffering. Like it's like a really easy title. Um, and uh, and and I would definitely recommend it. Douglas John Hall, I think, highlights a lot of the insights that Jory is is kind of saying, right? Where where um, Douglas John Hall posits uh, that that ultimately um, what God does to sort of address suffering and evil is is primarily to be a an answerer. That's how Douglas John Hall uses it. So is there an answer for the, for the deep sufferings of, uh, and of human beings and evil in the world? Douglas John Hall says, is there an answer that, that's like a once and for all answer to all of the depth of it? No. Douglas John Hall's like, no, probably not. But um, what we discover in The Crucified Carpenter might be an answerer might might be somebody that we can look to as as uh, um, a presence you know in the midst of our suffering or a presence over and against our suffering and and douglas john hall i think kind of subtly claims well that for some forms of suffering uh and perhaps for more forms of suffering than we are prepared to give to to admit um presence is really the best thing um, how does one address, uh, uh, after all, if, if somebody loses their child, um, no amount of raw power is going to fix that. You know, if we imagine God being the great corrector of suffering, what, what, exactly, what exactly is God going to do? Reverse time? I guess he could, but but that still doesn't fix the suffering. It just it just makes it so that it never happens. It, it doesn't doesn't change creation. It dials it back, you know. And so there's a sense in Douglas John Hall where he sees that. Another thing that I see Douglas John Hall in what Jewelry said is Douglas John Hall freely admits that because of the way he understands human freedom and the way of God's allowing for human freedom that creation could just fall apart and die and other john hall's like yeah they could just they could just fall apart you know and and uh and and i uh, i'm not prepared to go down that road road with douglas john hall i because douglas john hall doesn't just mean earth you know he he means everything like like there's a sense in which that's quite possible um, and it's precisely because of his free, of his understanding of, of human freedom. But I would highly recommend Douglas John Hall to anybody, but to you as, as well, Jory. Uh, and Nick, I would say that you're, you're really describing an Augustinian way of, of seeing evil and, and freedom. Um, uh, Augustine used to say, before he died <laughs> oh, <laughs> it got, Augustine, him in the end. got him in the end we got him in the end augustine used to, augustine says that uh uh for adam and eve um they they were given the grace 
to to choose the good and then they failed but but the highest form of freedom would be uh the inability to do anything other than choose the good um which which i think for a lot of american people that strikes us as very odd that that yes this idea that we're only free when we choose the good i think I think that that strikes us as a little less odd. Like, I think that we're more primed to sort of wrap our minds around that. Yeah, if we choose heroin, are we free? You know, <laughs> like, probably not. Like, like at least, at least maybe the first time we're free, but after that, we might not be free any other time. Um, and so choosing the good, I think, makes sense to us that way. But Augustine sort of theorizes, and he's not the only one to do this. Other patristic thinkers did this too. Augustine sort of theorized that on a long enough timeline of, of choosing the good every time, um, uh, we would come to the conclusion that there's nothing to choose. That uh, uh, because because for Augustine the, the primary problem is is a kind of an ignorance problem, and so uh, human sin causes human beings to mistake the good, you know, for the evil. And and so we have choices in front of us. And, and we want to choose what's good. We, don't, we can't want to choose something bad. We must first be convinced that it is good to make that choice. So we want to choose what's good, and we are mistaken because we are clouded in systems of sin, and, and we, we choose what is bad, and it leads us into worse stuff, and it just perpetuates on and on and on. But something strange happens when we choose what is good. When we choose what is good, um, our vision becomes a little clearer. And it might become a little more obvious to us where the good is. And for Augustine, the more we choose what is good, the more obvious the good becomes. And the more we discover that there is no choice. Because once we get to a point where um, we can no longer mistake evil for good, why would we ever choose evil? There, there's no reason to do that. Because, because reason for Augustine is oriented towards what's good. Um, and so for Augustine, the highest form of freedom is a freedom in which there is no choice, you know, and, and it's just, we, we just live, you know, in, in perpetual goodness. Um, Matt, my friend from where I used to serve, uh, uh, took me to task on this once. This is a slight side thing, because then I want to talk about John Hitt. Everybody's favorite. Oh no! Everybody's favorite thing. I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, I quit. You know, we have to talk about John Hick because his view on evil is elegant, and we All need right, to address fine. it. Talk about Matt first. So Matt was like, "No, that's that's shit." When it comes to freedom, you know, freedom is about choice. You know, and and if you don't, and if and if you get to a point where there is nothing to choose, you can't be free. And I was like, okay. And so I gave him this thought experiment that I didn't invent, like I read about it. And the thought experiment was, let's say that you have two options. There are two curtains. And behind one curtain is a killer. So if you pick that curtain, you'll be killed. And, the other, and behind the other curtain is your lover. If you pick that curtain, you won't be killed. You'll be with your lover. But you don't know which is which. Um, According to a libertarian view of freedom, you know, which is what the kind of the United States view of freedom is, in that moment, you are in the middle of a free choice. 
Take your pick. You are free to choose whichever one. But there's a part of us that understands that that's not quite a free choice. <laughs> like, you know, yes, we can, we're free to choose, you know, but, but we know that, that actually, um, if we choose the wrong thing, we're, we're just dead. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. There's a right thing. And so I then said, so imagine then that you were with those two choices and somebody was able to signal to you which one, which curtain hid your lover. Like somebody was able to say, it's that curtain right over there. Now, this would be a, um, this would be an Augustinian understanding of freedom in this moment. Because Jesus is sort of the signaler, you know, in, in this way. Like, and in this moment, you can now make the actual free choice. The choice that sets you free, you know, which is I can choose what is good, you know, and, and, and continue to do that. And so, yes, technically, we, you know, when we don't know which is which, we are in the middle of a free decision. But it's not quite free. You know, it's, it's one of those decisions will ruin us, whereas the other one is what is good. Right. And for Augustine, the choice doesn't actually go away. Sure. It's just that it becomes so glaringly, obviously stupid to choose the other thing. Right, right. It's not really, we would say it's not really a choice in the same way where if somebody said they were going to like kill your child or you could do this other thing that would save your child and you would, it's not a choice. You're going to save your child. Uh, Right, right. And, and so, like, there's a choice, but is it really a choice? Like, and I guess, again, it's a debate about what's defining choice. But there are two what? options, and you could still theoretically choose to do the wrong thing. It's you just could. that we would get to a point where we'd go, but why? Right, right. And that but why that you're saying is why uh, Augustine and the, and the ancient Christian tradition at large connects the good with reason. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like that, it is, it is irrational to choose what is bad. Like, like, like it, this is, by the way, this is why I don't have any fucking clue what Trump does on, on a regular basis. Cause I sit around and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, like it, it's, it's, it's mind boggling to me and to many of us, because here we have somebody who, who chooses what is bad on purpose. Like, like what is, what is the point? Like it, it is pointless. Be, and, and I think Augustine is right about that. Oh, and he, intentionally confuses what is reason. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and sort of make that connection becomes obvious choosing like, it's one thing to choose a bad thing because you thought it was the good that, that makes sense. That's, that's a, there's a rationality to that, but only because of the second part, because I thought it was good. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why you did that. You did that because you thought it was good. Um, you were wrong. But now that you know better, it would make no sense to choose the bad. Um, and so that's kind of how freedom could be like a one-way street, right? Like freedom in this view is I, I am making choices that 
that allow me to flourish as the being I am. And if I make choices that don't do that, that's not really freedom. It doesn't matter that I chose, mm -hmm. you know, it, it doesn't matter that I was able to choose to, to make myself incapable of doing what I needed to do. That's still a bad thing. A, a bird who decides not to fly is not a free bird. You know, that's, that's a bird who made a choice, Free bird. Free bird. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So let's talk about John Hick, John Hick. If we have Nick's to. favorite, Nick's favorite theologian. Well, he's not my least favorite. I'll say that. He once said to me that I love John Hick more than anybody. He said that to I, me once. I've never said that in my life. Um, Jory, have you ever heard of John Hick? I I've heard of him. I don't know any of his work. That's okay. Ben and I, I are recommend. theological ancestors of John Hick. We uh, are. Uh, our our Hinduism professor, Dr. Jeff Long, was uh, one of John Hick's PhD advisees. Was that the teacher you had in E Town that I sat in for our class, Nick? Most likely. He's kind of got long hair. Yep. Yep, that's the one. That's the one. Uh, quick, quick side thing. There isn't a single Buddhist, Hindu, or Jain scholar who has heard of Jeff Long at UVA. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to throw that out there. So uh, apparently Jeff, if you're listening, get up your game, buddy. No, nobody knows who you are. Um, but. Oh, poor Je Jeff Long. He's a nice Jeff. man. He's a nice man. He is a nice man. So, so John Hick is a, a sort of like a theologian. <laughs> he would not consider himself a theologian. John Hick's like a religious philosopher. That's what he call himself. And John Hick wrote a book on the problem of evil that um, uh, is, is one of those books that everybody, I think, kind of has to grapple with because it's a, a pretty unique view of evil and the problem of evil. Um, that that I think really appeals to the white brain. <laughs> and so John Hick uh, claims that uh, God is all loving, all good, and all powerful. And and this is why, and, and he's like, this is true. This is true of, of, of God. So how is evil possible? It's actually very simple. Evil is possible because it's not evil. What what John Hick suggests is that God uh, creates a world uh, where evil is possible, evil and suffering is possible, because he wants to create a spiritually and physically tough, good, strong human creation. And, and so John Hick, I see your face. And so John Hick says, um, how, does, how, how do people build character? Well, we build character by suffering, you know, by, by experiencing hardship. And so God um, allows for that possibility. Now, does that mean that God uh, wants the Holocaust? No. We're back to Hitler. <laughs> Reducio ad Hitlerium. I was literally <laughs> thinking it. I was like, he and Hitler would have gotten along very well. <laughs> Does that mean that God wants the Holocaust? No, it doesn't mean God wants the Holocaust. It means that God intentionally created a world in which the Holocaust was possible. Um, 
not because he wants the Holocaust, but because um, the, a world that could potentially cause the Holocaust is necessary in order for um, human beings to uh, grow and, and um, a develop character. Um, occasionally, Nick, whom I love, uh, speaks in a Hickian way about life where he talks about struggle, you know, and wrestling and struggle. Those are the, those are the products of, of life. Like we need to embrace those things because those, that means that we are alive and that, and that we are growing. Hick would say, my grandson, you are correct. You know, you've been taught well. Like, Can I clarify my position on that? <laughs> and then Hick would say, no, no, you can't. <laughs> Screw you, Hick. <laughs> But the difference between me and Hick is I don't believe it is necessarily God's intention. Like, sure. I don't think God creates evil so that we do it. For me, it's more, since we are here and it is inevitable, whether it was God's will or not, can we grow and learn something from it? If it's an opportunity for us to learn something, why not take an opportunity to learn something out of it? Sure. Or in the, in the Augustinian way, is that not, does the suffering not help us learn the signals for what is good better? Perhaps Augustine might say that that is true. Hick draws, Hick's, by the way, Hick's uh, view of evil, he, he draws a very clear uh, difference between himself and Augustine. He, he, he uses Augustine in his book on evil as the sparring partner. Um, and and would say that he is an Irenaean, which is not true, but but that's that's just I just want to throw that out there. I love Irenaeus, and I've read Irenaeus, and I'm like I don't think that's exactly true, but that's fair. Um, but uh, but but yeah, Hick would want to say, oh no no no, you know, like like Augustine has his views, and I am on purpose drawing a difference. Hick Hick wouldn't say that God makes evil. Hick Hick, Hick would say God's good intention for humanity is for humanity to grow in character and to become more good. It just sounds like our abusive drunk stepfather. Like, I'm hitting you so you learn a lesson. <laughs> no, no, it's not well, bad. It's just how parenting works. Well, it's so I'm not defending Hick. I'm just trying to clarify. The difference is it's more for Hick like no, no, I'm not going to police what you and your brother do. You and your brother do whatever you want. So it's a neglectful father. Uh, for a purpose. Hick also says, okay, no, no, no. But it's also like, I'm not going happen. to police what you and your brother do, but here's a bunch of sharpened weapons. In some ways, it is like that. So, so here's the other thing Hick does in, in his work. Hick, Hick says that one of the only ways that this can really work is if God on purpose hides God's self. Maybe not a full hiddenness, you know, like, like one, if one looks for God, one can find God, but God does not walk around in the cool of the day, you know, in the garden, like, like God might have once, once did. Rather, God, God does hide himself and says, no, no, you know, 
figure it out. He, God gives enough to maybe guide, you know, human beings a little bit, like, like into what they, maybe that's what religion is for Hick. Maybe, maybe what religion is, is God tossing a, a lifeline being like, maybe you guys can try this, you know, to, to get better. But yeah, that's Hick's, that's Hick's plan. Hick, Hick, Hick would say that, that it's possible for God to be all good, all loving and all knowing and all powerful. Um, and evil exists precisely because evil might not be what we say it is. You know, ev- if we think of evil as this like negation of human life, as the disruption and, dis- and de- you know, destroying of, of God's good creation, Hick would say, no, that's not what evil is. Evil isn't that, you know, evil is, you know, um, one of those uh, temporary things that, that uh, is, is there, not because God put it there, but is, but is allowed to be there because what God really wants is for human beings to overcome it, is for human beings to become better. Um, uh, the reason why I find this view to be very elegant and seductive because I do actually, is because to a degree, all Westerners already sort of think this is true, including us. Like, like there's a certain amount of, of, of this that we've already sort of internalized as, yeah, it's what's happening, you know, like, like why am I suffering? You know, or why, why is, why is it so hard or why are, why are, why is X, Y, Z thing happening? Well, God would never give you so much you couldn't handle, you know, or, or don't worry, you'll overcome the kind of, the kind of Western optimism is sort of at play here. Right. And, and Hick would say, good, that's a good thing. You know, that's, that's what should be happening. Um, now, do millions of people fall into genocide? Yeah. Is that a bad thing? Hick would be like, yeah, it's not good, I guess. But but Hick Hick doesn't really have a view of this sort of radical evil. Like Hick Hick would just say that remember God is God is looking to create a strong humanity. That individual human beings die might be tragic. But that's not that's not what God is trying to do god's not trying to save individual human beings god is trying to save the race by by making us stronger and faster and smarter and more good just sounds like a pathway to eugenics pretty quickly i don't I have, know i have to wonder what is he trying to make us strong for is he planning like now we go and conquer the other planets <laughs> right now we go to Mount Olympus and kill God. <laughs> uh, maybe. And so we become, what is that book series called? <sighs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you're referring to. Oh, uh, it was popular when we were in high school. But by oh, the oh is that, is that, uh, no, no, no. That's uh, uh, His Dark Materials. Yes, His oh, Dark yeah. Materials. Yeah. Where they kill God at the end. They kill Everybody Jesus. thought it terribly scandalous. Yeah, I think... Uh, uh, David Bentley Hart. It, it was that in the Da Vinci Code. David Bentley Hart reviewed them, and said uh, this uh, of the Da Vinci Code. He said uh, the most lucrative book ever written by a borderline illiterate. <laughs> 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 That's fair. 
he didn't like his dark materials either. But yeah, I, I find Hicks' view um, to be really elegant and uh, and neat, like tidy neat, you know? Yeah, but that doesn't make it good. I'm not I'm not subscribing to it. I do not I do not think it is true. I uh but I do think that it is a legitimate alternative. I can see how making Augustine his sparring partner would make sense for that because there is a sense in which he's taking the Augustinian premise that we already wrestled with here and just kind of taking it off in a slightly different direction. Mm-hmm. Um and I guess I'm just not prepared to follow him down that direction. Like I've been accused of being Augustinian many times. I'm not denying this, but like I find Augustine's conclusion more compelling than Hicks still, even though I might still say that we should find, uh, we should still learn things uh, through suffering we should still uh, gain more clarity by seeing what is wrong when we suffer. Sure. Um, but I, I think that's just that Augustinian training. Uh, training is not a word we use when we talked about, but it kind of was what sure. we meant of uh, sharpening our instincts or our understanding to know what the good truly is. So we can really freely choose it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just want to say my my quick thing about Hick that I think is sort of what makes Hick's view obviously not true is that for anybody who's encountered real suffering on on, not, not just, not just unprivileged people. I don't just mean, you know, people from other countries or, or, or black and brown folks. That's not what I mean. I mean, just any human being who has encountered real earth shattering suffering knows that suffering does not build character. You know, I, I I love you dearly, my friend, but yeah. do you think you became a good person when Cash died? No. <laughs> no, right. no, 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 no. <laughs> that's, that's honestly the thing. It's like, whenever you brought that up, my first thought was, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that's bullshit, you know? And it's the same thing with kids, too. Like, I say this all the time when we, when we bring up, uh, you know, at different times when I bring up Adrea as like a, my theological sparring partner, where I'm just like, there are some people that want to say um, that that in order for us to know the good, we have to have the bad, but they clearly haven't met a child. You know, we know that that it's actually harder for a child to receive love if they've received hate. Like, <laughs> you know. We already know that. Like we know, we know that the opposite of love doesn't increase love. You know that the only thing that increases love is love. Like, like that's the answer. And and I think it's the same sort of a thing with Hicks' view. I think it's one of those views that feels true. That feels kind of colloquially true. Like it's something that 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 our grandparents used to say to us. You know, and so there's something that's in there that's like, yeah, I guess so. Like. You know, you work hard, you suffer a little bit, and it builds character. Well, maybe, you know. Doesn't but, mean uh, good character. Right, yeah. right. It doesn't mean good character. And, and also, like, I don't think Adrea has to suffer in order for her to be a good person. I actually know that, that that's not true. You know, I actually already know that. You remember when Chris Irvin was, uh, was raising uh, his first daughter, 
and she would just sit there and scream sometimes and we always have that scene of of her sitting there screaming and chris refusing to get angry and yell at her but he'd just sit there and go addy 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 Addy, please addy communicate your feelings talk to me (laughs) and like just the patience of the man and i just i just felt like it applied here (laughs) it does i think it does um yeah, I, you know, we're, we're kind of talking really high level and I, and I'm, you know, I, I talked a lot there, but like, this is one of the reasons why I tend to see suffering and evil as, as always being bad. That, that I, meaning no disrespect to oppressed folks that find hope and healing in their suffering. Like I, it's not for me to decide, you know, when James Cone writes uh, about, you know, the God of the oppressed and how, you know, on the cross, we see our brother Jesus and our brother Jesus calls us to hope. Like I, whatever I'm with you, you know, I defer to you, but like, I don't tend to, um, from my own thinking, see uh, the need for suffering or evil, you know? And, and so I, I always see it as a pure negative. I, in, in uh, Karl Barth class, I, Bart, Bart has this really sophisticated view of evil called the nothing, the nothingness. And I am not going to sit and explain it because it's hard to explain. And it takes forever. But, but Bart makes this comment where, where he says, you know, God created a creation that has limitations on purpose. And sometimes those limitations can lead to a form of suffering. And that's okay. When sometimes those limitations can lead to natural, what we might call natural evil, and that's okay. That's not outside of God's, of the way God created, you know, the world. And so what that might mean is God created the world so that human beings cannot fly like birds. And we just have to get over that. Like human beings cannot fly like birds. You might dislike that, but that's not, but that's not evil. <laughs> Your disliking of that is not a bad thing. It's not a, it's not a sign of evil. Um, it might become evil if we create airplanes and then pillage the earth with our pollution, then that might become evil. But, but like, that's not a bad thing. And, and I brought up in Carl Barth class that I don't believe in natural evil. Like, because they make a difference. So the difference in certain theology is natural evil versus moral evil. Moral evil is the stuff that human beings do because of their own moral free choices. Natural evil is like hurricanes or, or like, a, you know, and even hurricanes are perpetuated by human moral evil. A tree falling in the forest and hurting a family of, of deer, you know, <laughs> like that would be natural evil. And I said, yeah, I don't believe in that there's any difference because I don't. And my professor's like, what are you talking about? Like, say more. And I'm like, well, yeah, I just think that tragedies and moral evil are the same. And he's like, how do you, how do you draw that, that difference? And I was like, well, because it's never in God's design for any cre- creature to die. It never is. You know, and, and, and I think that's true. I think that Paul talks about that in the book of Romans, you know, where he he sees creation as being inflicted by death, you know, like, and I, 
and and I just do. And so I, I think that a human being falling asleep at the wheel of a car and killing a family, nobody's fault, not really anybody's fault. Not really. Human beings are finite. And that's a form of natural evil, according to the to the theologians. I just don't think it's true. I just think it's all moral evil. I think I think that when Saint Paul talks about the prince of this world, he's being serious. <laughs> you know. I think when he talks about uh, in Colossians, he calls he calls Satan the god of this world. I think he's being serious. I don't think he's speaking poetically. I think he's like, no, I think, I think the dark one is on the throne. You know, does that, does that mean that there is a devil that walks around? No, but like, I think that, I, I don't think earthquakes are ever God's design. I don't think that uh, uh, COVID-19 is ever God's design. You know, I, I don't think anything like that. So I think it's all moral evil. And because I think it's all moral evil, I think that um, God puts God's self against it. Um, and that's my view, I, I would say, you know, is, is to just say, is to just say, yeah, there, there's, there's never a moment in which evil happens that doesn't have a sort of moral intentionality behind it even if that moral intentionality is takes place in the form of these powers and thrones and dominions and, and stuff like that. Hmm. Well, I got to say, this has been a great conversation uh, for listeners. If you guys are confused that's okay. Great, we are too. Yeah, we're we mm-hmm. are just as confused, and we are just uh, struggling and working through it day by day. I'd encourage you to look up some of the theologians mentioned today. Um, re-listen to the episode and take notes if you want. Um, but I think right now, I think is a good time for Nick, Ethan, and I to go experience some minor suffering by playing League of Legends. How about you guys think? Huh? <laughs> I wouldn't call it minor. <laughs> I, I have some time. I have some time. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone. Why are think... we intentionally choosing the not good? <laughs> well, as as we were discussing, maybe it will build character, Nick. Oh my God. And that that's not true. That is not true. It won't build character. <laughs> but thank you all for listening. Uh, I am Jory, your host. Thank you for listening to uh, Confronting Christian Culture. If you have a, a lesson you've learned that you'd like discussed tweet at us at cxcpod that's cxcpod thanks have a great day or don't thanks for listening if you have a lesson you would like discussed feel free to tweet at cxcpod that's cxcpod